Welcome to Full Cast and Crew, a podcast that takes a film, methodically disembowels it, and sifts through the offal before calmly, almost lovingly, categorizing each piece, breathing in the steam that rises from the blood pooling thickly beneath, searching, ever searching for the darkest, most disturbing pieces to either consume ourselves in poetic reverie of the wearying limitation of human experience, with a nice Chianti, or to offer up as a fast, cheap, and extreme sugar high of entertainment. And that is our intro for this week's movie, which is The Silence of the Lambs. And we're joined by a very special guest. <laughs> Am I supposed to introduce myself? <laughs> I thought that you I were going to... torture begins now. <laughs> <laughs> My wife, Amanda Charlton, is joining us. Welcome, honey. Yes, thank you. She's so, so, ha- she's so I'm nervous. So, I'm, so happy, I'm so happy to be here. I love your podcast. Oh, that's so really nice do. to hear. When I was away for a month and I was driving all the time, I listened to it a lot. It sort of like robbed you of the ability to be away from your husband for a month, to have well. to listen to him in the car for an hour <laughs> each way. There were definitely times where I was like, I can't listen to him right now. <laughs> so Chris knows the feeling. <laughs> and Chris, right, it's I so got to ne- edit it. I got to do it. I have to listen to the same listen to thing multiple times. <laughs> do you feel like you know more about our relationship <laughs> Because you have to deal with him all the time. I feel sympathy for you sometimes. I'm like, let Chris fucking speak, man. It's a problem. We share something now. You do. But nobody else could understand. You guys are close. Are we like uh, the beta to his alpha? Is that what's going (laughs) on? No. Two betas. That's what he would say. Two plus two, right? (laughs) Two plus two. And equals four. Can I transition to an introduction of Amanda? Give our listeners some idea of her background. In addition to being my wife, which is not at all one of the top five or six most interesting things about her or qualifications that she has for being here on the podcast. Great. Like you, Chris, Amanda was originally an actor. She went from dancing in her living room to the Grease soundtrack. Firsthand information from her sister. True? Mm -hmm. True. Okay. (laughs) Also touchy subject because, as you know, I tried to bait her into leaving me a voicemail message when we were going to do Grease. I posted it on social media because I wanted her to call me angrily and say, you can't do Grease without me. I have to be on the Grease podcast. And then I was going to play it into the pod because it's all content. Not checking social media. She had no idea that it occurred. (laughs) I'm not a big social media. Anyway, she went to Carnegie Mellon in the 90s. All right, it was late 80s, early 90s. (laughs) You studied at Carnegie Mellon with a lot of interesting people. Yes. Billy Porter. Yes. Slayer of red carpets. Yeah. He was Uh, my classmate. Our colleague, Paul Kalp. Yes. Uh, John Patrick Walker, currently touring America as King George and Hamilton. Ethan Hawke, briefly. Ethan Hawke, yes. And full cast and crew super listener, Josh Murray. Holding down Sweden for the pod. What's up, Josh? (laughs) Hi, Josh. But like most intelligent actors, at her first opportunity, Amanda moved behind the camera. I did. She spent 10 years at the Williamstown Theater Festival, wonderful theater director, whose latest show, Cried Out, just completed a wildly successful run at the Merrimack. Rep. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank and you. And she's next going to direct Connor McPherson's The Weir at the White Heron Theater starring July 25th. Are we allowed to say who stars it? It's not on the website. I don't know well, if that's official. Well, you can say Nina and Jeremy are definitely doing it, yeah. It's not on the website of the White Heron. Oh, well. Because you could get in in. trouble. They're in. Are you sure? Yes, positive. All right, starring (laughs) starring Nina Hellman and Jeremy Shamos. Wow. Yes. Big Big deal. Big deal Broadway actors. She's also directed web series for Chuckler, including the award-winning, hilariously on-point Friend Therapy, starring Crazy Ex-Girlfriend star Bella Lovell and Clea Alsip, most recently in John Guare's Nantucket Sleigh Ride at the Lincoln Center Theater. Chris. She's also on the board of Space at Rider Farm, a nonprofit artistic residency program and organic farm located on the grounds of a 224-year-old family homestead in Putnam County, New York. 
She has worked with both Roger Rees and Woody Allen. She's incapable of staying awake on the couch after 8 p.m. to watch a movie, and I have no idea how she watched today's film. <laughs> She's the central figure around which our entire family orbits. It's through her we maintain our equilibrium. And it's been said that wives save lives, and that is true. So thank you. Oh, my God. That was so nice. I feel teary. Anything that's said after that, it just feels so small. Especially now. a movie about a horrific serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, honey. Yeah, let's segue to cannibalism. Yeah. So, yeah, that's your intro that I wrote for you. I feel like that intro was really long. Oh, I'll take out some stuff. Okay. Yeah, okay. fix it in post. <laughs> right. Fix it in post. All those credits and nobody's <laughs> heard of Paul Cop. You know what I mean? Cut that. Paul Cop was on the pod last week. I bet he was great. Yeah. Paul was the star of our school. So like 25 years later, you're like, great, still following Paul. Totally. <laughs> like, Paul has this ability. I mean, Paul is just one of the most charming, funny people ever. Yes. Yes. So. You know, was it palpable at Carnegie Mellon that Paul was like the star? I thought they all were amazing in that class, but there were three guys in that class that were particularly talented. Who and were they? Paul was one of them. John, I thought John Walker, John Walker. was really talented, and mm -hmm. this guy Rowie Levy. Like Rowie Levy. Everyone talks about Rowie Levy. Just really gifted. He was like the actors. actor that never was. I mean, I think he still works a little oh, does bit, he? but um, he was just a really gifted actor. Like mm. he just he had something that I I don't know. You know that thing, that unknowable thing yes. that actors have they, that just. The, Chris has that. Yes, you do. Chris. Oh. And I actually remember. And like Rowie Levy, not <laughs> still works occasionally. Well, I, you know, it's funny because when I first met you, I was a little starstruck because I remember seeing Metamorphosis on Broadway. And you were the guy that picked up that girl with one hand yep. wow. in this pool of water. And who were you? A king in it? I was her it was father. Like it was an incest. Disturbing. Disturbing. Disturbingly yes. complicated. But I remember, uh, yeah. but I <laughs> it's remember actually pretty thinking, simply disturbing. <laughs> I remember thinking like, that guy is really good. And is that because he was shirtless and covered in water? I mean, that was part of it. He was, but, you were kind of ripped then, weren't you? He was born to he play. Was, he was ripped. But, but that whole production was incredible. I mean, that, that was the first time I had ever seen anything like that. Mary Zimmerman's work was incredible. Yeah. So, And you were fantastic in Oh, that. well, thank you very much. It would be hard not to be because it was such a stunning visual. It really was. And it was a great, those stories are, they're Greek myths. Yeah. They still work, so you yeah. kind of can't go wrong. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it was great. All right, now that we've completed the Mutual Appreciation Society, okay. can we move we on? We don't have enough time to discuss the film, no. so thank yeah. you. <laughs> coming. Now, the reason that Amanda is here to do Silence of the Lambs, and as I mentioned, Amanda went to college at Carnegie Mellon, and through a bizarre sequence of events, she was actually present during the filming of some of the most iconic scenes from this film. Which, now, which would they be? So I was in Pittsburgh at the time that I guess they were shooting this film, and a really good friend of mine from high school, this guy Gray Beverly, he worked with Jonathan Demme. And uh -huh. he had, I guess, assisted Jonathan and had known him. I think he was a family friend. And so he came to visit me in Pittsburgh and said, Jonathan Demme's filming something. Do right. you want to go? So we went downtown Pittsburgh to this huge, like, plant or factory, or it was just a, it was like a hangar. It was massive, like... It was so big that when we got to the front door, we had to have a golf cart take us to the set. And the set that we went to was actually the killer's lair. So it was his bedroom oh, wow. and it was the pit that Brooksmith was in. It was also the prison with Hannibal Lecter. The plexiglass the, box. The plexiglass box. Yeah. When I was there, the crazy thing is when I was walking around that set, I remember seeing the Swatsika quilt. Oh, and wow. I remember looking at like a phone and it was all sort of bedazzled. And there was this very petite 
petite woman walking in front of me. And she had dark auburn hair and she was kind of complimenting the crew. And I'm following her through this set. And I realize I'm following Jodie Foster as she sees the set for the first time. Gray was like, let's go see Jonathan. He's shooting. We should go watch. So we went down to the prison. And when you look at the end of the prison, there's those stone steps mm-hmm. that go up. Yeah. Yeah. I was standing on those stone steps watching Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster when she was sitting in the chair, uh-huh. um, rehearse their lines and shoot a little. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. It was incredible. You know, when you're in acting school, you sort of have to act the time of day, the weather. There are all these things (laughs) that you have to manifest as an actor when you're performing. And I remember thinking, my God, you don't have to be aware of any of those things. Like, (laughs) this this set is so detailed. Like, I swear I could hear, like, water trickling down the stone Mm -hmm. wall. And it was damp when we went down the stairs. And it was creepy. And there was, like, a slight echo. And the whole thing was so atmospheric. And I remember thinking, like... Oh, like if you're on a film site, it's all there for you. And the other thing was like, it was so not performative. They were so quiet. Really? Like I couldn't even hear them. Like, and he was getting like fed lines from the script supervisor. And I remember thinking like, he doesn't know his lines. You know, I was like, just like an actor (laughs) asshole. He doesn't have to remember what time of day it is. I was like, he doesn't have to pretend it's cold. You know, like he doesn't have to do anything. But that's a good point because I think in my imagination, you think of being on a film set, you think that when they call action, the only thing you could hear would be the voices and the dialogue. But if you think about a movie and the way that scenes are pitched, it's conversational if, at best. Yeah. It's probably at this volume. Teachers you and probably coaches can't even hear it. Casting directors, they're always saying, you know, or do less. Hey, anyway, well, they're telling less. you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clarice, and like, ah, bring it back. <laughs> I was really struck watching it this week, like how amazing both of them are, particularly Jodie Foster. Totally agree, although one member of the podcast will have a disagreement with you, but I'm on your side. Which I, I agree. Cannot, but I both of them were either. conveying a lot with yes. very little. It reminds me of what the production designer on Heather's said, to your point, which is, if you create the world, then the actors inhabit the world the way that you're talking about. It's something I think they're aware of as production designers yeah. is the more specific the world is, and I think the production design of this movie is fantastic. I know. I, Amazing. I, I, I want to talk about that because I think that's incredible. She but did a I, great I will job. say that one of the things that I I remember thinking when watching it was was the intimacy between the two actors and like just the awareness of the crew that they were sort of honoring as much as they could to create that intimacy too. Yeah. And I could tell like, oh, I'm witnessing something incredibly special here. It was incredible. It was Did incredible. you get to meet Jody or I didn't or really get Anthony to meet Anthony or I remember was being behind her in the space and just really the design of it and just being kind of blown away by how incredibly detailed mm-hmm. it was. Like yeah. everything like things you don't see in the film. Yeah. Like we're all there. Like and I remember thinking like, what a gift for this actor. Like mm-hmm. this is all here for him. She did seem very cool in the extras. I thought like she's so, it's one of those DVD extras where the person that you're watching talk is so different from the character yeah. you just watched yeah. that in my reductive reasoning, I always think, oh, she's a really good actor. She's <laughs> well, nothing not like wrong. that I mean, as Starling. I mean, I, she's not a fan. No, wait, she doesn't wait. like Jodie Foster. No, no, no. That's not true. That is not true. It is not as easy as that. Because she snubbed you on the set. She didn't <laughs> she say anything. She was, not was. She was like, I can do that role. Jealousy. I thought that she was really good in this film. Yeah. Only thing about Jodie Foster, and this is just like a general thing. I'd be curious to know, Chris, if you think this too. I'm going to do actor speak. Mm-hmm. But I think like her instrument isn't tuned to be able to be highly emotional. Like I just mm-hmm. don't think that yes. she has that vibrancy. She's such a smart actor 
that she knows she has to hit a certain pitch. And so she will muscle her way into that pitch. And because she knows that's part of the storytelling, I always feel like she's really trying to get it as opposed to like she has it so available and she's trying to push it down. Funny you say that because I had the opposite reaction. Like you said, because her instrument is not tuned that way, mm -hmm. I was so impressed with how much was going on. Mm -hmm. Like I was struck her role as a woman in yes. these mm -hmm. men's that. world. I was seeing her take that in and having it there with, without it being demonstrated and the relationship with her and Lecter as, as it grew more intimate as he was asking mm -hmm. more things. Nothing was ever lost. It never became comfortable for her. And I think part of that is this was not a role that calls for heavy emotions, even that she's telling the story about Does the lambs. Yeah. It has to be that she is holding it back because she doesn't want to give too much away. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I just see her acting like, I think she's fantastic in this. I really do. My thing with her, and it's like there are a couple actors that always do this to me. They just take me out of the story. In terms of Clarice Starling, I think the thing that works about what a man is talking about with Jody is there is an emotional reticence that you're never given as a viewer right. from her, unlike some other actors. But I think that the story beat about her father gives you a reason for her to be that way in the movie, where all the dynamics are a little freighted with father dynamic of her being in the world yeah. of men and being towered over, being condescended to, being treated like an object. And really, so much of the movie is so fascinatingly about women being treated as objects, as meat, as clothing, mm -hmm. as something to be gotten around. But of course, she's the one who figures out where to go and solves the whole crime. First of all, the score is incredible. And that mm -hmm. first scene when yeah. she's running through the woods, yeah. it just sets the tone so right. And and when she gets into the elevator, all those very large men in red shirts, and she's just, and she's so petite, she's yeah. so small. And I love how she's walking down that Warren's den of the mm -hmm. FBI offices and cameras from mm -hmm. her point of view. and. Every man she passes mm -hmm. stops what they're doing and looks, looks at, at her. her. Mm -hmm. When I saw it the first time, I had no recollection of <laughs> any of that. And this yeah. time I was like, this is a movie about patriarchy. Like 100% like a feminist's anthem. Made me think of League of Their Own, how sexism on the day-to-day, -day, how the everyday sexism and the small indignities that were happening all the time were woven in there. And it yeah. was that much more powerful for that in the same way that this, now looking at it like, oh my gosh, this is happening all the time, and it's just one more obstacle Starling has to save this other woman. Jodie Foster says this. She was so attracted to the story of a girl saving a girl. Yeah. To stop the future killings as well. Yeah. The fact that she's the, the hero is a narrative that at that time was not happening as much. Right. But also I think all the men in that movie, her father, who she has flashbacks to scenes about her father, and then the boss, and then Hannibal Lecter, they use her as a pawn. And yet here she is doing the solid work. Mm -hmm. Here she is solving it. And all these men sort of with those like, orca, you know, little puppet strings sort of right. manipulating her. I think Jonathan Demme was a very smart filmmaker because he obviously had that point of view very much. I mean, like everything from the costumes that she was wearing to the set design. I remember when she went into the house of the girl, the first victim, and there's those green leaf vine patterns on the wall of the um, of the house when she opens the door. And then she goes into the girl's room and there's this like bucolic, you know, wallpaper with all these little schoolhouses. And, and she's wearing a little green shirt with little, embroidered flowers on it. It's like so inherently like earth, spring, mm -hmm. growth, female. Like it's <laughs> so, it's, it, she, he didn't approach it that this woman had to sort of take on the characteristics of a man in order mm -hmm. to do this job. Well, Christy Z is the production designer. I mean, she's still working today. She's worked forever. She's and incredible. That expires in one week. You're not real FBI, are you? I'm still in training at the academy. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. 
Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Mm. That is rather slippery of you, Agents, darling. Sit, please. Now then, tell me, what did Miggs say to you? Multiple Miggs in the next cell. He hissed at you. What did he say? He said, I can smell your cunt. I see. I myself cannot. You use Evian skin cream. And sometimes you wear lead at all. But not today. What's so great about that scene, when he holds her gaze, he locks eyes with her, and then he blinks in a way to release her. Up until then, you're in kind of a familiar procedural FBI movie, but it's really the Miggs thing, the line that Miggs says, and his having her say it again, and they, I myself cannot, and then the way he inhales. This is how he's portraying this insane monster, as opposed to grand gestures and being, I'm crazy. This ends up becoming a cliche, I think. Like we probably see a lot of these sort of uh, ultra sophisticated serial killers yes. that, for whom it's almost like an art, like <laughs> yeah. a delicacy. I love seeing things like this because I can't remember that kind of character before this. It doesn't feel forced in the same way that a crappy episode of a procedural with a similar kind right. of Mastermind, or of like all-knowing mastermind. Exactly. As the 90s went on, they would go for more and more Baroque yeah. ways of showing just how twisted and dark they were to the point that it just stopped registering. They said this in the bonus thing, but I think it's so true. Like Jonathan Demi had said to him, okay, we're going to start the scene and uh, we're going to bring the camera around the corner and, you know, what are you going to do? And he said, you're going to sit, you're going to lie down. And he said, oh, I'm going to be standing. Do you want to stand in the middle of the cell? And he's like, yes, I'm waiting her arrival. And I thought that that was a really specific choice. And also his clothes are so fitted and yeah. so designed, even though they are just this horrible, you know, Prison garb. I think that that stuff is so calculated and so smart. And just those small choices have so, are so impactful. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting that what turns him on is getting to know someone, right? Yeah. right. Getting to, so when he smells her, he's not crass about it. But the whole thing is like, at this point in the movie, we've watched her walk around the FBI and all of these tall men, it seems, just staring at her mm -hmm. or wherever she goes. And then she, she sort of has this bizarre relationship with Jack Crawford, you mm -hmm. know, and you sort of... He's still using her a little bit he's throughout still, the whole He's movie. totally using I mean, her. A lot. He's, uh, <laughs> uh, totally. She's walking down the hallway and Miggs is like, I smell that cunt. And then as soon as he asks her and he gets his honesty, which allows him to sort of mm -hmm. trust her more, then he smells her. I'm like, this whole thing, it's like little fucking Red Riding Hood. Yeah. This sweet little small girl who's strong, but... She has to put up with this. She has to put Everywhere up with all goes. this bullshit. Although there is something, even though he does smell her and there's a sensuality in oh, that. Oh, it's so sexual. But he wants to get to know yeah. her. And I think that's what she responds to as yes. well. Because yeah. everybody else, even Crawford, he does manipulate her and he totally. does undermine her at points. Again, even if he apologizes and says, like, oh, I didn't yes. realize, you know, that kind of thing. The fact that somebody is plugging into her intellect and something that she, you know, I don't want to slag off West Virginia, but what we know about her background of growing up mm -hmm. and getting away, getting yeah. to a place where that could be used and appreciated and can flourish. And it feels like it must be and this is a great irony, 
that the only <laughs> respite, the only person that can appreciate her is this murderous cannibal. Yeah. Well, they're both really good at their job. <laughs> you know, he says to her, good nutrition has given you some bone length, but you're not more than one generation removed from poor white trash. He diagnoses her. And really in the first shot of the movie, she literally emerges from the dirt. I didn't notice huh. that again until watching mm-hmm. that credit sequence with those ominous titles, that font rim yeah. black with white. She literally emerges from the earth and dirt up the hill mm-hmm. and then kind of comes around and you don't know where you are until the guy comes for her in the woods and then turns and his hat says FBI. Right. She has FBI on her sweatshirt. Does she when she's yeah. running up? I didn't yeah. notice that there. But it's smaller. But it's it, small. Yeah. yeah. Well, my eyesight's going. Yeah. Just make me feel We're better. old now. <laughs> Um, speak for yourself. What's amazing also, you know, I guess Demi was known for this technique. If you look on the screen, you know, everything is filmed direct to camera, which I think talking about sort of being on a film set and like not being able to hear the actors because they're just sort of speaking on film volumes. It struck me also in my mind, I always think like, wow, great acting on screen is about catching moments between people as they stand across from each other and are working together, but you came to see this movie, there's absolutely no way anyone in these shots is delivering their lines to a human being because they are literally standing right in front of the camera. And Anthony Hopkins says in the feature, the focus pullers, this time film, Uh digital Uh kids, they're whispering to each other. And it's, you actually have this stuff going on right in front of you as you're acting, as you're trying to just act as if he's talking to Clarice, but he's just talking to the lens of the camera. And so is she. But it, it is intimate. They do feel together. But did you did you feel like it's funny that you say that because I noticed that he did it and it and and Jack Crawford does it and even that that's that, a Jonathan Demi thing. But that poor girl in the cafe with the short bangs, yeah, so nineties. <clears throat> um, they all looked at the camera, and mm-hmm. but Jodie Foster never did. Jodie Foster well, looks this, off to the side a little bit. She like, does in that one, but she does have the same shot that we're looking at here. This, but this I honestly kind of thought, like, she's just better trained in a weird way. Like, I thought, like, she no, could no, handle no. it better. I don't no, know. Well, thing. I was reading an, an interview with uh, Jonathan Demme that yeah. when he was talking specifically about the relationship in this scene between the two, that uh, Lecter is head on mm-hmm. and, and she is off. ever so slightly yeah. off. Mm-hmm. Because as, um, what is it? We're, we're never quite getting his point of view. Right. We're always, it should be her point of view. So we're putting her slightly off again. You know, it is still very intimate. It is still very close. And I do love the way he uses close-ups. Yes. Just to bring the theater thing back. (laughs) Like, do you think that if you're a theater actor that you can do that a little bit better because you're constantly used to working on stage and having kind of a rich imagination and having to fill that? The risk, I would think, would be that maybe you go too big because you're used to filling things in with your your imagination and be like, ah, look at Yon Wall. <laughs> but like if they actually built Yon Wall and there's water running that you don't have to do that yeah. stuff. His control of his it's body is there. The control is I, I do remember that. I remember when we were watching it, everything was so minute, like they were whispering. Well, he yeah. says that thing in the feature about how he approached Lecter. Always go opposite. They have an expectation. And it's it wasn't this. A mastermind who needs to be locked away in a specific type of cell because he's so insanely brilliant. Right. Now it's a thing, like you said. Yeah, now it is. But, but that stillness, yeah. that standing, yeah. his he looks like he could strangle you. Yes. Yeah. He the looks- eerie stillness and then the it's little, tough. you know, we could do the Chianti scene. I mean, I don't know. You got to play. It's like you have to play all the clips yeah, everyone's expecting to hear. That's my least favorite part. <laughs> you know who, but that's uh, the humor, though. You know who uh, agrees with you is Jonathan Demme. 
Oh, really? <laughs> I, I was reading. He doesn't I like that? This is a movie that people have written so much about yeah. and given so many interviews on. So who knows? But one of the things that I read was that it was something that Anthony Hopkins did unprompted. Both his making fun of her accent yeah. was something she mm. did not expect and that she was genuinely hurt. <laughs> Though she did say she's like, you know, thank you. Like, it really was an honest moment. It was unrehearsed. But so was the... Uh, and uh, everybody thought it was cool and keep it in, but Jonathan Demme was like, eh, yeah. a little over the, little <laughs> over the top. And he got, I think he got sick of it maybe because it, people kept you know, doing it, doing it to him like in the street. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Don't you think great thrillers have moments when you're in the theater where after a scene concludes, you go, and you catch your breath. For me, when she departs this scene and Migs flings the semen at her and it gets caught in her hair, again, these really weird moments that really must have been aggressive. hard to trust in the moment that yeah. this is gonna play. That's the stuff of greatness. Someone, either the screenwriter or Jonathan Demi, had the vision to understand how this is going to play together. And it's right. not just going to come across as exceptionally crude or gross or turn the audience off in some way. But there's so little of it. And the way it's doled out really gets into you and messes you up. And well, then when she closes the door on that prison and goes to her Ford Pinto and starts to cry, you have this exhalation. It's an extraordinary scene. And it goes on for so long. Yeah. This first meeting is minutes and minutes of screen time of just the two of them. It's funny, you know, they have um, the movie clips on YouTube that are sort of official. And of the 12 clips, I think six or seven of them are from these conversations at the jail cell. It just sort of shows you that the iconic moments from the movie are the two of them. Can you even swallow your own tongue and die like Migs does? Is that a possible thing? Have you Googled that anyone? No. I did. Kind of. But in order to die mm -hmm. on it, you would have to... You're making this up. No, no, no. You'd have to bite your tongue off <laughs> oh. and then swallow oh, it. Oh, maybe that's what he and means. And so I think I read a quote where somebody was saying, oh, it's not exactly said, did he just convince him somehow with the power of his mm -hmm. mind to, to... Or if he convinced him to bite his own tongue. Oh, then, okay. That makes more sense. Yeah. But if you swallowed your own tongue, wouldn't you just swallow it? Yeah. Like... I mean, people Who's to say it would get caught? You don't breathe yeah. through your throat, do you? But wait, I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean you breathe through you? your nose, and if something's in your throat. Is your nose throat. connected to your throat? Nose and throat. They, yeah. yeah. Well, how do you eat and breathe at the same time, then? Oh, my God. Um, so <laughs> oh, so I, I have one thing to bring up, though. There is a performance in this film that is very underrated. Wild Chris Isaac. <laughs> Chris Isaac. <laughs> one warning. We need him alive. Chris Isaac is, is the killer. Yeah. Oh. Well, like, I, wait, 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 wait. Nobody underrates no, Ted I, Levine. I don't in, think people, I don't think that he gets the, pro, like, are you when you think about this film and all the accolades, awards, future career opportunities, everyone gets something except for Ted Levine. Which oh. is kind of weird because okay. it made Anthony Hopkins a huge movie star, which right. he really no, wasn't prior to. that's what I'm saying. Why, why does this character, like, he went to such a He's deep too creepy. place. But I think part of it, was the whole stigma around the transgender homosexuality issue. I don't think that impacted his career because that was no, just No, I don't a, know if that impacted his career, but that impacted Because that wasn't what they were doing. To it. Well, Ted Levine says he had a hard time after this movie getting cast as anything other than a psychopathic serial killer. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, he is I can't that guy. think of a better yeah. version of that. You have Anthony Hopkins doing the opposite of that in the restraint and the control. But man, Ted Levine is oh. so fucking 
dark and out there, and it's the voice and the way he looks and, the and his physicality. And, his and, hands. and the, like, like he was gross. too good. You'll forever be typecast. And he suffered that problem. He says that. I mean, yeah. he, he still works, but what I else do know has he's he still, done. Well, like, I mean, he's mostly oh, he, you know he's a Chicago guy. I think he was a Steppenwolf. Oh, is he a Steppenwolf? Guy? I think he was. A, I, I, I feel like I Brooke Smith. She was one of those actors, you know, when like you have that your doppelganger, like somebody yeah. that you're constantly auditioning. When I was first auditioning, I was always her. Like I, oh, every really? time I went to an audition, <laughs> because we both had curly hair, I don't know, she was always there. Like, look, you know, after this in 91, he didn't really have the type of career that an acting performance, not a psycho serial killer performance. He's another guy in the extras. He's the nicest, most engaging person. And Jodie Foster says they were ironically buddy-buddy on the set because he was so nice and kind and warm. Yeah. She also says the same thing about Scott Glenn, by the way. She's like, Scott Glenn is a former Marine. He has that look, but he's totally not what his image is. She said he is. was a weeper. Yeah. He's like totally touchy-feely, totally yeah. granola crunchy. Another thing Demi's so great for, and he's such a weird, interesting director, and the story of how he got this is pretty interesting. You certainly would have had no reason to believe prior to this that Jonathan Demi was the right director to make this horror movie. This is another example where there's the unsexy studio executive is kind of the unsung hero and the reason why we have the movie we have. Mike Metavoy, he's really the one who had worked with Demi on something else. The property was originally bought half and half by Orion Pictures and Gene Hackman <laughs> for Gene Hackman to direct and possibly star in. I didn't know Gene Hackman directed. Well, you, you guys all wanted to Well, direct. he didn't. I mean, he didn't do this. <laughs> Did I he ever direct? That up he must have directed, ever directed something. something. It said that he, he was, was going to play, play Crawford. The, he was going to play Crawford. I think Not that would have really... been a much better choice. Well, I had read that he would have wanted to do Lecter, but as he was getting closer and he was like, oh, he I don't know if I can do that and direct at the same time. Yeah. I may have to go back to this smaller role of Crawford. So Mike Metavoy, after many people, it's, it's funny, once we do alternative casting, we can talk about this, but, but a bunch of people who are attached withdrew because- too violent, too You're creepy, right. don't want to do it. And Gene Hackman was one of those people. Gene was going to pay 250000 and Orion was going to pay 250000 to buy the rights to the book. And then Metavoy and Orion just bought it outright and said, Jonathan Demme could do this. Without Mike Metavoy, there's no way in hell Jonathan Demme would have been attached to direct this movie. When they were talking about this, you know, it was supposed to be Michelle Pfeiffer playing this mm -hmm. part because she was in Marriage to the Mob with Demi, and so he wanted her. But Jodie Foster really pursued this part, mm -hmm. and people in her camp were sort of like, you just won an Oscar for The Accused. Why are you working so hard to get this role? Like, she had a meeting with Demi, and she said, I think it's kind of like this fable. This girl goes in the dark woods to save another girl, you know, and she was so used to playing the victim all the time that it, for her, it was such a relief to play someone who was the crusader, someone who was the savior. And that was like a real shift for her as an actor. Wow. And I think it just is a testament to her intelligence that she could see the potential of this particular part. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it goes to show you, like, it was the perfect part for her. And she was right. the perfect mm -hmm. person for that because she was kind of emotionally in a place where she was ready to play that. Michelle Pfeiffer wasn't for whatever reason. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Another thing I love about this film and about Jonathan Demme's direction, and also just because I want to play a little bit of this song, his smash cuts are great. 
And this scene here. What's a smash cut? Well, a smash cut is where we're introduced to the girl who's about to be taken captive by Buffalo Bill, who is singing along to Tom Petty in her car. And it smashes from the previous scene right into her. No fades. No no, fades, no dissolves, no. no, uh, (laughs) The opposite of gentle. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And this is one of the great ones. Let me see that. And note in this scene, the eerie headlights behind her, which we as an audience member, even though we don't yet, we haven't yet seen Buffalo Bill, Ted Levine. We don't know that he drives a van. We don't know anything about him, yet somehow in this very scene, the way the headlights waver behind her in the car, you know she's being stalked. Oh boy. It's so simple. Yeah. It introduces her. It introduces Buffalo Bill. Just the way those headlights come back in. It's cre- it's so it, I get goosebumps. Well, I think their use of sound design oh, yeah. and I think the use of incredible. lighting and the use of set and costumes like it is so it's so timeless. And it's so incredibly evocative. When she's talking to Hannibal Lecter and she's just come out of the rain and she asks him, you know, who was in the... Who was yeah. in the and he puts the towel in the thing, yeah. It puts the towel so and it's just that loud sound. Yeah, the sound design and she, is amazing. And, and she's been told 3,000 times that she shouldn't take anything from him. Right. She shouldn't show him anything. And she sort of debates, should I grab this yeah, towel? Yeah, I don't want to take a towel from that guy. But she does. But so she I think I, I think it's all... I mean, that's what I mean when I say, like, I think he's such a strong director because he obviously was so clear about what's story you wanted to tell because everyone's on the same page and that's so hard to do. Sometimes things are at war with each other. Right. And that is not the case in this film. The amount of control that having all of those choices be so strong and so deliberate. Yes. I think that's why some of the gore mm-hmm. the seam, when going back when you said like how would you know that like the flicking the semen through the thing that yeah. that would play and yeah. not yeah. be funny. I think it's because everything had been so yeah. steadily built you know so that then this twisted and ugly Mm-hmm. very emotional thing that happens. It's almost like it's couched in a frame. So too, like when the towel gets offered, like you said, yeah. that that sound is so strong because everything before that it had been quiet and you mm-hmm. know, the place that we're in and the significance of never taking anything, it's all played up. It's just creating context. It's but it's also, also a jump. You're watching in the theater, yeah. it's a jump. The sound is so loud and jarring that it gives you that jump. It's also like that other thing that they were saying when the makeup designers were talking about the fact that all the women that they had the photos of that had bits of their skin taken off that they had taken pictures, those were real women. That was real design on their body. Like they were really submerged in water and then left in a cold, freezing day. And I think those are also things that subconsciously are affecting us because we know like that's a real body. Like She's looking at the camera. It's positioned in such a way like that's a real body. That's a real face. She is in a cold, wet place. I think that they had said like they did 20 or 30 of these pictures and many, many shoots of this and they're real actors playing those parts. Mm -hmm. So I think the levels of detail in this are intricate and aid in the storytelling in such an immense way. 
Another interesting thing on the sound design, the scene that we just played here, and then obviously we cut to her getting out of her car, her little cat in the window, which is such a great, yes. almost Spielbergian touch. She's talking to the cat, and we see that pop, the electronic sound as he mm. puts on his night vision glasses. That sound gets repeated almost later in the autopsy after they find yeah. the body. And the guy is taking the autopsy photos with that camera that yes. has the metal things where you just physically put the metal prongs onto the body to distance the lens. And the flash bulbs are popping. And Demi uses that so prominently in the soundtrack. I think they talked about it in the things. You also have like in the jail sequences, they had rumbling pipes. They had whooshing air. They had like ominous sound, well, dripping like water. Well, they had like ambient environment Ambient environment noise, that they, yeah. Like that they aided in the storytelling. Yeah. And I think also so many times if you have some something that isn't organic to this place that the yeah. characters are in, it takes you out. The fact that they were able to use these things that are environmental, that are ambient, and aid in the storytelling, just a thing coming out with a towel in it, sure, it didn't sound like that, but they were able to put that sound on top of it. That's just such a great use of craft. If your dad ever had a van in the 70s, he's got some secrets. Okay. <laughs> so true. Just so you know. Especially if he had the inside of the back doors replaced with wood, your dad was a serial killer. I hate to tell you right now. <laughs> So. It's got nothing to do with me. My dad had a Pinto. Yeah, my dad. Just had, like, my, uh, dad. my mom had a Pinto. Just like Jodie Foster. Did he really? Yeah. Yeah, my mom had a Pinto. We're Pinto brothers. Um, love your suit. I mean, the comedy, there's so much comedy too, which yeah. is so odd and such a such a welcome touch. I was thinking about Lecter. We fell in love with this monster. Yeah. Like, because he's got style. He's got humor. I was going to say as I was watching, I was like, oh yeah, he only kills people that deserve it. Totally not true. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> He is a psychopath, but he's one of the most iconic horror figures ever Absolutely. created yeah. mm -hmm. in popular culture. Looks like a Buffalo Bill type situation. I mean, they got all these great <laughs> FBI guys doing these yeah. little small parts too, which lends it this verisimilitude. And that and one they, guy with the great mustache. Yeah, the oh, crazy mustache. That. You know, that guy's a musician, yes. as is the woman you were referencing in the diner scene with the crazy bangs. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, so, you know, Jonathan Demi. it's funny, when you look at his IMDb page, what did he spend the next like couple of years doing after this movie, which is one of only three films to win the big five Academy Awards? Yeah. He spends like two or three years making music documentary stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Including, right? Stop making sense. Yeah. That's um, the, the most famous which of is, them. That's iconic unto itself. But that was before this. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was 84. But he did some documentaries. Well, he did Philadelphia, famously. Mm -hmm. That's a good See, movie. just to get back to that Ted Levine, the mm -hmm. whole thing about transgender and homosexuality, I will say that uh, Jonathan Demi, he was making this film, I, being able to see something that at the time you weren't aware of. And I think even though they did not have the intention to make characters like that always be evil or be these horrible mm -hmm. serial killers, it it's still, you know, it's a guy who's confused about his sexual yeah. identity mm -hmm. and he is a serial killer. Like, that's mm -hmm. basically what it is. And even if you play it like you're an angry heterosexual who wants to, like, eat the woman, mm -hmm. it's still, you're, you're, you're making a suit out of her skin and trying to wear it. So what, and tucking what, your genitals. And tucking your genitals and, and putting on makeup. And so it's pretty clear some sort of conflict going on there or some sort of confusion. I think that it's one of those things where he then, you know, 
there was like a, all these pamphlets and protests. And Jonathan Demme said, we should all read this. We should all be aware of yeah. this. Like this is a, you know, he was kind of horrified by that reaction because that's not at all what his intention was. But then his next film was Philadelphia, which I think is so interesting. I've become such a big fan of his as a filmmaker because I think he's just such an empathetic person. And I think he's a, a, like, a, I think he was a wonderful artist. I had never given him much thought yeah. until he died. I think it was in 2017. Yeah. And to hear the way that people spoke about him and then to look at his body of work and how varied it was. Yeah. And it, to read a quote, I think he even said something like, listen, I'll do better next time. Yeah. Like, that Philadelphia was a direct response to that. I definitely think it's a lens that we can look at really differently now because we're much more aware. Yeah. We're much more cognizant of that issue in a way that we weren't at the time. Well, in 1991, yeah. people weren't talking about transgender bathrooms, except for you who went to Hampshire College. And yeah, we already, already had, had that, that in 72. <laughs> but, well, but people, under people weren't aware about that. And it's the same about the female issue. I mean, I think looking at it now, after Me Too and all the things that are happening right now, you, you look at that film and you think, God, that was so, it was so ahead of its time. Yeah. It so, you know, it was so forward thinking, this yep. film. This has always been one of my favorite scenes. I just want to play a little Buffalo Bill dancing to Q Lazarus. Okay, precious time for a little treat. things that was interesting was Jodie Foster said, you know, Brooke Smith's character is the opposite of what you would expect the, you know, trembling, fearful damsel in distress. She's hilariously shouting insults at even Jodie Foster, who's coming there. Don't leave me, you fucking bitch. (laughs) She's hilarious. And she's uh, perfectly cast. She's so good in this. Featured Brooke Smith and Jamie Gum and Darla. 
as, as the, I saw that Darla had a had a credit. What are some of Darla's other credits? Well, Chris? you know, like James, like um, like, like Ted, Ted Levine, Levine. Si- typecast. Not not too much. Although she did come, she did repeat uh, appear in Batman Returns. Hmm. She was, if you remember, the Ratty Poodle. Oh, of course. But uh, but she was uncredited. Great speech. Uh, Ratty Poodle speech in Batman Returns is second only to Quint's speech in Jaws <laughs> as great mo- great filmic monologues. She was also in just to uh, tie it back to Jaws. In the Burbs, interesting. Which who? is uh, Brooks Smith, Darla. No, oh, Darla. Darla's a dog oh. who played Precious. Dogs have that. their own IMDb pages, oh, okay. um, and this one also has has her death. She died in ninety two, age yeah. seventeen. Pretty good for a dog. Yeah, Thousand Oaks, California. True Hollywood story there. Yeah, you know, she looked great. Born right. in USA, died in Thousand Oaks. <laughs> anyway, cue Lazarus. That that's Goodbye Horses is such a weird song of its time that has stood the test of time. I love it. I still remember, speaking of theater, yes. that you, Amanda, took me to some piece of theater in which that brilliant young director used that song in Dracula on stage. Matthew Hancock. That was genius. Whatever happened to that guy? I don't know. Matthew Hancock, where are you? Was it Dracula? It was Dracula. He staged a Dracula to that song. It was incredible. I He's remember it to this day. It's really, one of the best things I've ever seen. He's a really gifted director. It's one of those sad things of so many of these amazing actors and directors just can't afford to live here or yeah. just can't deal with it and move on. I'm, it's amazing to me that this song... When you say it like it stands the test of time, like to me, I will never. You'll not never listen think to it. This, I mean, maybe I'll listen to it, but I'll always think of oh, this. So, you know, I listen to it just for this sonic interestingness and weirdness of it because I huh. think it's like you don't know—is it a man? Is it a woman singing? Mm-hmm. It's actually—I mean, Jonathan Demme is such a lifelong music right. fan, and I think really understands the use of music. That's why the score is so specific to this movie. And then the popular songs that appear throughout are so well chosen. It's so obviously great that for James Gum, you don't know who's singing the song. Right. Could be a woman, could be a man. It's just a great character introduction. The close-ups, the tattoos, love on his hand, the putting on the necklace, putting on the makeup. and It's then like dirty fingers. Dirty fingernails, and he's wearing the skin of... <laughs> You know, you kind of know, but don't know yet yeah. that he's wearing the skin. Reminded of now, so many of these things in the movie we know now, but I remember the twists. Mm-hmm. I remember the twist of the Lecter escape, the Baroque staging of the disemboweled body, and then he, spoiler alert, cuts the face <laughs> off the one cop and wears it, so they remove him from the scene, and then he, Freaking when they genius. figure it out, he wakes up in the ambulance and kills the kills the other guy. I remember that for the first time, not having any idea how he's getting out of this. Right. And then I remember the way they intercut Crawford going to the wrong house and Jodie Foster going to what we're told is the wrong house. But then we, the audience, are the only ones who know he's in the wrong place, she's in the right place. And the way that's intercut, I remember what a great twist that was. Yeah. Well, like they were saying that the parallel action there, like they weren't going to do it that way. They were just going to have it play out and then cut to the doorbell of her and his house. That's my favorite acting moment of Jodie Foster's. Okay, so She's great in that scene. And I think it's an interesting camera thing too, is when she opens the door, you know how they always say in acting school, don't play the end of the scene at the beginning? right. Like she so clearly doesn't. Like (laughs) she's so, like the the murder has been solved. She's just going to this house to just do some follow-up, little handy, what's the word I'm looking for? Housework, whatever. Housekeeping. Housekeeping, thank you. Way to use a gendered sexist term for a qualified FBI agent. Would you say housekeeping if it was a male FBI agent? She is an intern. 
Like, let's not, not, let's not lose sight of the she's fact. A she is not, she's a trainee. She is oh not done yet. Right, she's so has an after-school job with Jack okay, Crawford. Hold on, hold that on. Goes, that goes a little bit off the rails. <laughs> Anything I can but do I, to help but I, but, I, but I love that scene where she sort of is so easy with him. She's just asking a couple questions. And then he says, do you want to come in for a minute? She comes in, something, a little red flag is raised or a big red flag is raised, but she's still sort of in the process. And there's nothing more delightful than watching someone discover something. And they have, it's such a great take. And the whole time he's off to the side and she's standing there. You know, we could play the clip instead of you explaining it in shot by shot detail. And then you might be able to just sort of talk. I don't know. I don't know. That's sort of how the podcast works. You know, I have it queued up right here. You you see on the screen behind you. Are you close to catching somebody, you think? Yes. We may be. Did you take over this place after Mrs. Littman died? Is that right? Yeah, I bought this house uh, two years ago. Did she leave any records, any business records, tax forms, lists of employees? Well, nothing like that at all. Say, has the FBI learned something? The police around here don't seem to have the first clue. I mean, have you got like a description, fingerprints, anything like that? cut where suddenly you're farther away from her and mm-hmm. you're just straight on. Yeah. yeah. What is it about that that's so powerful? Well, it's I because just, we know now that you spent the whole movie with her and with him and you know how terrifying and how seriously sick this situation is that she just walked into and the set design. Look at the, I mean, it's the, the whole the house is, is amazing. Is lightly yeah. filled with smoke. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a bachelor pad. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> Chris, is that your rocker? <laughs> When it did go to the I kitchen and like your rocking the gun on oh, the stove in the frying yes. pan with congealed fat, I was like, oh, that fry, that stove does remind me of my first post uh, college apartment. Yeah, like you don't bother to clean the pots. That house, that house is so Pittsburgh, by the way. That fireplace. I oh had, yeah, I had a fireplace like that in a place that I lived in Pittsburgh. That's the other thing. It's like this decayed woman, like a, yeah. a woman yeah. who once cared for this home, who had all this decor and, you know, all these sort of references to sort of flowers and butterflies and growth and earth. And she was someone who made things. And then it's just like destroyed by this man who well, burrows over into by, the yeah. ground. You know, he doesn't live in that floor. He goes to the basement and has this whole sort of Cocoon, Right, yeah. And yeah, there yeah. are all these metaphors throughout the entire film. I think what's great about his reaction when she says, can I use your phone, is again, oh. unlike a more run-of-the-mill movie where the psychopath would have some clever bit or scary big action or dialogue, he does this like 
like he makes sort of a sound that's not related to what's going on on the screen. And it's the sound of he knows that he's caught and yet he's also kind of sickly thrilled. Mm -hmm. He knows he can get away from her, get her downstairs, kill the lights, put the night vision glasses on again in a tour de force, crazy reverse stalking scene yeah. at the end. He was very concerned about casting that part. I think and he Ted was- Ted Levine, some, man. Oh, Jesus. he's so good. Honestly, he's my favorite <laughs> performance. But also that one bit that we didn't play, which is, you know, when- At the beginning. At the beginning. That's the best cut. I'll this play is, the beginning here. play the beginning. No, go back. Go uh, back. Okay. This, is, can, what, this can, is what it's like at home. Ours is the oh insights that I am getting. What are you getting? What is, what's happening? No, it's figure like, some uh, stuff out? Come in. We'll start with twice a week, and then we'll see after a couple weeks. You've never done that, Chris. All right, here's the beginning. No, go farther back. It's the beginning of the clip. I want, I want to go farther back it, because it you starts want to see the here. cup into this. What's the problem, officer? Well, I'm investigating the death of Frederica Bimmel. There's no one here, Jack. Clarice. Your name is? Oh, uh, Jack Gordon. Mr. Gordon. Good. Um... Well, Frederica used to work for Mrs. Lippman. Did you know her? No, uh uh. Oh, wait. Was she a great big fat person? Yeah, she was a big girl, sir. Yeah, I, I miss. No, I, I read about her in the newspaper. Um, Mrs. Lippman had a son, though. Maybe he could help you. I got, I got his card in here someplace. So, do you want to come in while I look for it? May I? Yes, sir. An interesting thing which just struck me when you talked about the weird thrill in reaction to being caught is the very fact that he does invite her in. I'm always like, why does he do that? But this is a great And I wonder how much of it has to do with that. His whole confusion about whether mm -hmm. it's sexuality is wanting to be a normal person, wanting to change into somebody that can fit in with the rest of the world. He's there, she's asking, and his desire to be more helpful as if to project the kind of person he wants to you be, or is it that there's a thrill in showing how much smarter or whatever it is by bringing her in and getting a little bit closer to being caught? Or capturing her too. Or well, it goes back to John Douglas, who the Crawford character is based on. Mm -hmm. He's also the source of Mindhunters on Netflix. Uh -huh. Yeah. What's it called? Behavioral science. Behavioral, Behavioral psychologist. Psychology. But uh, these guys think they're in control. They enjoy the concept of inviting the FBI agent into your living room and toying with her. I think he invites her in to find out whether he's in any trouble. Do you have fingerprints? Mm -hmm. Any of that kind of stuff. Once she says no, I think he thinks he's going to either get away or capture her. But the easy answer is probably for the plot. <laughs> but he's also, you know, I don't know if there's a like, deep psychological he reason. he's in control and yeah. he is to a certain extent. And yet he is inviting her into a shithole with yeah. all the clues. South American moths, all the thread, the thread and stuff. The thread for the seamstressing. Like, and Jonathan Demi shows you each of these things. Yes. Very so this is not an argument. It is more of a thing of just, he is smart enough to do what he does, but he is broken and damaged enough to overlook certain things. You know, he could find out more from her mm -hmm. by keeping her on the porch, yeah. but he invites her in, taking a bigger risk, especially considering he can't fucking wash a dish. That came from, that was the research that they did on that killer. His whole house was just filled with dirty dishes and debris huh. and garbage. So that's directly related to- yeah. Look, we guys real, barely have time to real, pick up after ourselves as it is. If we had a big serial, <laughs> serial killer sideline going on. Yeah. You know, what's also great about the end of the movie 
in keeping with the theme of the woman throughout, I also love that in the end, he's just a guy you can easily kill. He's not a super mastermind, right. super strength individual. In the end, she just outdraws him and blows him away. And he doesn't come back to life and grab her ankle as the scene continues. She just shoots him and kills him. Mm -hmm. There's something perfect about that in the way that he dies and the way she shoots out the window and the light kind of comes back in. In the end, she's so terrified in those night vision scenes, but she's us. Like, we would be that terrified. Oh, like, yeah. And all those men failed her. She's there alone. She also makes a lot of mistakes. You know, she doesn't excuse herself from the building. She doesn't call for backup. She doesn't Well, she said, can I use your phone? Yeah, she said, can I use your phone? But She and, probably shouldn't and, have asked the serial killer to use his phone. Yes. He'd be like, you know what? Let me go, go get you a card. I'll yeah. be right back. Of course, they don't have car phones. Cell phones, but, see? You know, In cell phones, you could, day before cell phone, you couldn't catch a serial killer. Chris. That's why they were, that's the first thing. murder suspect was actually arrested just only two weeks ago. <laughs> it took us that long. But I think she is ambitious. Chris, you found someone to laugh at your jokes. I am. I really, I, um, but she has ambitious. That's a director's laugh, by the way, right? That's like, this is my actor. I have to laugh at this joke, even though I don't think it's funny. That was like a hollow director's laugh that you gave him there. You didn't even get a director's laugh on that one. Um, has any I movie... was saying something, but you interrupted me. <laughs> oh, okay, so, go ahead. Sorry. Um, um, I can't remember it now. Okay, well. <laughs> I'll yeah. edit it. You know, if you pod keeps are rolling. Record it on your phone. Email it to me. <laughs> okay, let's just do a quick run through the cast and then do a little alternative casting. Another unsung hero in the movie, the great Charles Napier, who Demi says he cast in every movie. If you could find a spot for Charles Napier, he's just a that guy. You've seen him in thousands of who movies. Great this? voice. He's the curly-haired cop towards the end who... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. his name is like Brooke or Boyd yeah, or yeah. something. He's, he's, he's so the funny. cop who ends up getting actually eviscerated and hung yes. like a piece of art on the cell. Brooke, we've talked about. Jody's great. Scott Glenn. Of course, you mentioned the iconic <laughs> performance. In and Urban, Urban Cowboy. Cowboy. Loved him in that. But I have to say, I think Scott Glenn was miscast in this. Oh, no. Come on. Only because I find him not paternal at all. I find him completely creepy, and I didn't trust him for a single second. Was what that right? Was that creepy. what we were supposed to think? Like well, I think you're supposed to be a little off kilter with him, but I don't I think was, he's playing creepy. Oh, the whole time I thought, oh, you can't trust him at all. And I don't know if I'm just so influenced by Urban Cowboy <laughs> <laughs> that, I think I, that I just couldn't buy that. Anthony Hopkins is great. Frankie Faison is great. Chris Isaac does some solid work. Do you think Brooke Smith is one of those actresses that if it was now and she was just starting her career and did Silence of the Lambs now, she would work a lot more? Wow. Yeah. Well, she does work a lot. Uh, she would have had a, a bigger career because she's sort of a real woman. You know, she's yeah. not stereotypically beautiful. She's strong. You think she'd work more now than she would I think she, she would, would work so much more now because I think at that time, especially during the grunge Generation X, they were saying they wanted a strong woman, but that wasn't what was being cast. It was like Winona Ryder and, um, mm -hmm. you know, these sort of uh, kind of quirky petite girls like Martha Plimpton and Parker Posey. Like yeah. th those were the girls that were getting the parts at that time. And but I think now if she she would be getting those parts, yeah. I hope. Let's do alternative casting. OK. Put that one back. As we said, bought by Orion for Gene Hackman to direct and star in would have been Bizarre. weird. And thank um, God he didn't do it. Well, and what I read was that he didn't do it because his daughter read the book <laughs> and was like, what the hell's wrong with you, dad? This is gross. And he's like, oh, really? He must have had a van. <laughs> 
<laughs> with wooden paneled back. He would have been good. I mean, Gene Hackman does have what you need, I think, for Crawford. And he would have been in a big improvement for but Crawford. It, but there would be no potential romantic frisson between Gene Hackman and Jodie Foster. I He's think too paternalistic and old. Scott Glenn exudes a certain virile That's masculinity true. that I think they want. So I don't know why I was it, it, It's again, like you it, said before, it it's it's amazing how it's many like things. back hair in the glasses and, yeah. that, and that coat. The coat. You know, I like I like a baggy <laughs> '90s look, but that coat was a mistake. The trench. It's just way too big. But I also think one of the things that well, Colleen Atwood said, him. which I think is great, is like she really wanted the costumes to be timeless. And that and was I think the one they, misstep. I think that they are for the most part. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick, co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's Mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. Michelle Pfeiffer for Starling. Jonathan Demi had, as you mentioned, Amanda, made Married to the Mob. She, as Starling, no. I mean, she turned it down because of the subject matter. I do not see I her also being read Clarice she turned Starling. it down because they didn't give her $2 million. Oh, <laughs> that'll <laughs> help. But, but like, let's think about it for a second. Like, her playing that part had been kind of interesting. I wonder how different no. it would be. Too you know, pretty. She's too pretty. She's too pretty. But Julia, but Jodie Foster is so beautiful. I mean, yeah, I was about to say, like, I mean, that is definitely Julia, not possible. But I'm Foster. saying Jodie Foster is beautiful, but Michelle Pfeiffer in a plain is, way. Jodie Foster is, is like plain beautiful. Stops, like things stop when Michelle Pfeiffer comes into the That's scene in true. a way you can't have. That's true. Um, well, to me, a actually, better choice would have been Meg Ryan, who I think also was mentioned. Meg Ryan would have been terrible down. in this part. She could have done the kind of slightly dazed fish out of water part, but she couldn't have done the steely believability part. The one but, I but, thought was Laura Dern was mentioned. That mm-hmm. would have been She could have done it. She could have done it. The studio Laura didn't want her. her. Yeah, Laura Dern would have been amazing, um, actually. I did read that Brooke Smith actually read... For Starling. Really? Yeah. She would have been a great star. Yeah, but that's like when you bring in the Chicago cast of Grease to read for the Broadway roles just to be cool, but you know no one's getting it. Right. Like, yes, you have your top few, you know it's going to be one of these, but it's like, yeah, sure, bring it. Yeah. It's almost like having a general. So Demi was the one who really had to be convinced. And he says that he didn't want her until they met. He saw her coming towards him in a hallway and he said, quote, I saw this sturdy little figure with a determined look on her face, and I suddenly realized that's Clarice Starling. Yeah. Which she knew all along. And look, when just the question of whether it could be Meg Ryan or Michelle Pfeiffer, like none of those people have the kind of grit, that determination of that strength that to yeah. me, just Jodie Foster just strength. exudes. She also exudes an incredible amount of intelligence. Yes. yes. And I think that that's the part that, uh, that's yes. why she's appropriate. And she also has kind of like a tomboy thing. Like you mm-hmm. believed she like climbed trees as a kid and you believe that she is a, fa- she is like a daddy's, you know, mm-hmm. daddy's girl. Like that she was a motherless girl. Like like our daughter. No, no, I think maybe she's a, she'll grow up to be an FBI agent. No, she's a motherless girl. Oh. You know what I mean? Oh. Like you believe that yeah. about her. Going back to what I was saying earlier. What about projecting my death? Stop doing that. Um, <laughs> Knock on wood. For Lecter, Don't some die. interesting choices. I think this is real. Of course, I think a lot of actors wanted to play Lecter. Robert Duvall. He'd have been good. But maybe a little too much star power for the time and the role. Like, we didn't really know Anthony Hopkins unless you were yes. an esthete or thespian in 1991. Is the character supposed to be British? No. I wonder why they didn't consider, and I want to play a little of this because it's an interesting, um, just an interesting bit to note that in Manhunter, Brian Cox, who's great, played Hannibal Lecter. 
You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file in this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. You're very tan, Will. Your hands are rough. They don't look like cop's hands anymore. And that shaving lotion is something a child would select. It has a ship on the bottle, doesn't it? Don't think you can persuade me with appeals to my intellectual vanity. I don't think I'll persuade you at all. You'll either do it or you won't. Besides, we have Dr. Bloom working on it, and he's the best. Do you have the file with you? Yes. Pictures? Yes. Let me have them, and I might consider it. No. Dream much, Will. Goodbye, Dr. Lecter. So there's some very there's similarities. I mean, even in the you, you'll either do it or you won't is word for word used in the Jonathan Demi version. Oh yeah, I watched Manhunter. That's again. William Peterson opposite Brian Cox. Uh, Love Manhunter. Huge Manhunter fan. Eighty six. It's so nineteen eighty six. It's Chris. very nice. It's and it's good. I don't want to mirror it off. eyes. It oh. is not as good. And the fact that there is so much that it's is better. This. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I mean, love it's it. good. Like, I don't want to say it, but it's amazing just how many of like literal like plot points and speeches like are yeah. repeated. Well, uh, it's also interesting. The pr- the production designer said, is, and this is the problem she yeah. wanted to avoid is right. she didn't want to have the bars in these dialogue scenes between Lecter and Starling. I didn't even really think about it, but it successfully plays like he's so dangerous that he needs to be yeah. in a different type of cell. It just plays effortlessly that way. But Christy Z talks a lot about how it was based on her local bodega in New York City that was always <laughs> like has the cashier behind plexiglass. Right. And so she was like, what if we put him behind plexiglass? And everyone was like, yes, except the audio guy who was like, if you do that, it's going to sound like this. And she was like, we'll drill some holes in the top and the bottom for air, and that will allow the sound to come through, and that's what they eventually did. Wow. Okay, so also for Lecter, other than Duvall, which I think could have worked. I don't think Duvall is intelligent enough for that part. Hmm. Hot take. Sorry, Bobby. Uh, Sean Connery was approached by Demi. No, terrible. Jonathan Demi said that was his only, like, that was his first choice. And yeah. he's <laughs> did love this. Yes. Oh, he was like this guy. How is do perfect. you do, Miss Starling? That was the he commercial would not choice. have been good. That's the commercial well, choice. Yeah. yeah, he said that. He said like the he does have the intelligence. Sean Connery and um, and Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. I think yeah. he was saying like these are two things. And the thing that Sean Connery had was the the sort of physical virility. Yes. That Anthony Hopkins does not exude yeah. in quite the same way. And as you as said, it was the commercial choice. He was like the biggest star yeah. in the world at that moment. Yeah. He's like this would be great. So. So he sends him the script and we sent the script to Sean Connery first. Word came back shortly that he thought it was disgusting and wouldn't dream of playing that part. So, uh, but I think there is also, there is also something to, Oh, says Mr. Zardoz. uh, But there, but there is something to having the villain be someone that we, the audience don't know well is so powerful in this story because now if Anthony Hopkins played that part, we wouldn't be afraid. Like, I think there, that's why I think the storytelling is so strong. Like having a female protagonist in this particular story makes the stakes so much higher because the audience automatically sort of assumes she's not going to be strong enough to handle this 
situation. And then you have a villain that is unknowable as an, as an actor we don't know. So then we sort of buy in to his evil, his villainy, his brilliance, because we actually don't know him. Sean Connery would have reassured us. You're so certainly reminded that it's, a, yeah. that it's a movie. It's Here's a star. I know yeah. who this is. It kind of hems it well, in Well, who's the only male character in the whole movie that's on Jodie Foster's side? Paul Lazar, I guess? No, Hannibal Lecter. Oh. He's the only male in the movie that's with her. Yeah, but he it's does not that. Her, it's not her mentor. To, no, it's not. Uh, yeah, but he does that for sexual reasons. No, no, no. It's not sexual between yes, them. Yes, because I think he he no. give he helps her. Uh, he he listen. He, he respects hold, her. Hold please. He respects her, sure. But he, what he gets off on is getting to know the inner workings of a person. Her revealing the whole thing about the lambs. That's like an orgasm for him. No, I yes, don't. that's not I, how that's played. Oh, totally. are you kidding? He gets, he gets off on that? Yes. It is an her. He feels sorry for it her. It is an incredibly oh, intimate. Yeah. Well, whoa, I would say like whoa, intimate whoa, thing whoa, that he is it, coaxing it is this intimate. thing from her. But he's and not that sitting he's, there like orgasming. He's, he's no, actually, but he says, that is actually it's actually very touching. Anthony Hopkins looks when he orgasms. It's very touching after she reveals the screaming lambs part. He's very like sensitive with her. Lecter is sort of beyond that stuff. What's sexual for him is getting to know a person, getting to know their inner workings. Like He helps her through the whole movie. I mean, he's the one who helps her catch the serial yeah, but killer. You, you, but he helps her get him, but he gets the things that he wants from her. Right. You know, like well, you're acting I like mean, he there's more get of a cru- Yeah, there's more of a quid yeah. pro quo. It is quid for, pro quo. It is, quo, it is quid pro quo. Exactly. Anyway, as with, every, with everybody. All the men in this film are using her. I guess so. I just think, to me, the, the interesting thing is that he's the one who uses her least. Jack Crawford is definitely using her to advance his career, and as she's getting her award at the end, he's obviously leaving to go and get bigger and better things as a promotion. No, no, I think she's the you know he is giving her an she opportunity that will. But, but he's going to be the beginning like, of her. Career. He's going to be like head of the Chicago field office now. He's already head of the the behavioral sciences division. He's got nowhere to go. He's like, I'm fine. I well, teach reason, one class. Of well, the reason why they have him UBA. leave that way is that you think for a second maybe Hannibal Lecter is stalking Crawford. I mean, that's what how that's set up. Pacino, De Niro, Dustin what? Hoffman. All those These guys? were considered for Lecter, but again, this is the era when those guys just get every get everything. script. And maybe they want to do it. I do wish that public records extended to uh, like A-list actors auditions. Yeah. No, that I would wish be great. so. I, I would. Oh, they don't audition. Is he kidding? Or a screen tester. Yeah. Like I would love to see like Robert G. Like just give it a shot. Like I don't, there, <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I'm just smell, smell it. Two additional um, British actors that I think would have been interesting, and the closest one of all of them is Derek Jacoby. Uh, could Jacob- have is it Jacoby or? I have heard Jacoby. Yeah, me too. But I don't want to. Uh, Derek Jacoby. Yeah. And the theater. Because uh, I remember he, when he did a Tom Stepard play. That I, <laughs> <laughs> Derek Jacoby, he could have been good as Lecter. Daniel Day-Lewis. That I hadn't read. He would have been much too young, I would uh, think. 91. He, he, he can exude all those things at the same That's time. He, it would have been. At I mean, six, he could, play, he could do anything. Yeah. Jeremy Irons, no. is he one? Yes, I, I did Was read he? that he turned it down. Partially because uh, he had just done Reversal, Reversal of Fortune, Fortune. And, and he's like, so creepy in that. Good yeah. movie. Such a good movie. Um, Sir John Hurt, Christopher Lloyd, Christopher Patrick Stewart. Lloyd. 
Yeah, like Christopher Lloyd. Like I want to kill. Uh, <laughs> they would have okay. definitely been going in a different direction yes, if they if it was. Lucy, he would be Lucy. like in the corner, sort of talking to his hand. You know, <laughs> it was Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Before we, f- we conclude, it's only the third film to win the Big Five. If yes. anyone even calls it that, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. It's also the first and only Best Picture winner, widely considered to be a horror film and only one of such films to be nominated in the category, along with The Exorcist, Jaws, Mm. and Get Out. So that's a pretty amazing sweep for a movie like this. Wait, one other thing I think we didn't talk about is like the other character in the film, which I definitely think is Pittsburgh. I think we gotta give a shout out to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a great character. Pittsburgh is a, a huge part of this particular story, and because I lived in Pittsburgh at that particular time, I think there was an ominous, sad, working class mm-hmm. vibe to that city at that mm-hmm. particular time, and I think that totally aids in the storytelling. That's and right. one other, one other detail that we forgot is that Jonathan Demme got his start in movies working for Roger Corman, yes. famed B-movie producer and director, and Roger Corman plays FBI director Hayden Burke in Silence of the Lambs and says, I'm pretty sure he cast me in this because I used to tell him what to do all the time. And for once, he got to tell me what to do. (laughs) I thought that's a good cameo. One of many cameos. Also, George Romero was one of the FBI agents. Is that true? Yeah. Wait, get out of town. I don't see that listed here. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. George A. Romero, FBI agent in Memphis, uncredited. I did not notice that. Oh. I, it's only because I saw it on the IMDb. Was he wearing the glasses? He was not wearing the That's glasses. That's why I didn't recognize him. Yeah. Harder to That's recognize. why I didn't recognize him. Um, wait, one last thing that I had, which was um, what I liked Anthony Hopkins, what he said about that last shot. His physicality is so specific when he's go hunting oh. his prey. And he says, I thought of it as a cat moving up the garden path for my prey. You know, and I You're love You're talking that. about Lecter <laughs> yeah, Hannibal in Lecter. Haiti. The last shot of the film. Uh, now in the Columbo Cinematic Universe. Columbo Cinematic Universe. Ah, one more thing. Jonathan Demme himself directed a very excellent over-the-top silly episode starring Louis Jordan called Murder Under Glass. Food critic Paul Gerard, who has been extorting money from restaurant owners in exchange for good reviews, murders one when threatened with exposure. All right, let's move on to Latchkey TV. Hello? Of course I'm going Ah. Do you have your, t- your TV guide? Yes. Now, this is the segment where our guest tells us. Speaking of Hannibal Lecter, we get a little uh, psychological insight. A psychological insight Via. into our guests. Now, what time would you have come home from school? I'd have been home around three. Okay. Were you a latchkey child? Were your parents at I home? I was not a latchkey child, as you know. Well, um, the viewers don't. No, my mom was home. Okay. Were you allowed to watch TV when you got I home from school? I was allowed to have a snack and watch TV when I got That's home nice. from school. So I would watch, if I could, if I could, I would watch the end of General Hospital. What do you I mean would, if you could? Because if I got home, well, I guess Oh, because like, it started at three? It started at three. So I would always get the last like 15 minutes yeah. of General Hospital, which was, or Edge of Night. Which, which I, I bet you loved. I love Because Amanda likes anything with heightened emotional stakes. Especially then. Soap operas must have been sweet General Hospital was like in its heyday. Oh, yeah. Incredible then. Jeannie Francis? Shut up. I loved it. (laughs) Then at 4 p.m., I would definitely do Three is Company. Three is Company? I love Three is Company. I think that was like the beginning of my love of like slapstick humor. Oh, sure. John Ritter. I just love when people like fall and trip, and that's all John Ritter did. (laughs) I'm like, to this day. That's not all he did. No, but, but I mean, he, his 
slapstick humor was Rest in a peace, game. John Ritter. Yeah. I mean, like, and he he's a great physical comedian. He's an incredible physical comedian, and he fell in multiple different ways. Great pratfaller. Yeah. He's yeah. incredible pratfaller. Yes. So I would watch that, or or it could be Dukes of Hazard. I never got into that. Oh, I, loved I didn't that like show. yokel shows. That wasn't my jam. I loved Daisy Duke. You did. I loved her. Wow. And my first commercial, and the guy who played the- Boss Hog? Not Boss Hog. Tom like Wolpat? Uncle, Uncle Jesse. Uncle Coo-coo-coo. Jesse was in the commercial with me, and I was absolutely 100% starstruck. <laughs> yeah. Did he have the beard? Yeah, he was old and had the beard, and he was like, oh, I'm really- Wait, Whoever what was Daisy the weird Duke movie is, he was in that we I watched? I was going to say, he was in Return to Witch Mountain oh, without right. the beard, oh, so I didn't so know. Great. I didn't believe that it was yeah. him. And he's also in um, the Johnny Cash Columbo episode. Oh, interesting. Starstruck by Uncle Jesse. Then what would you watch? Then I would definitely watch Brady Bunch and then MASH. Margaret wants to bury a time capsule at the oh, yeah. and asks everyone to contribute one item they think symbolizes their experience in Korea. Oh, my God. I remember that. <laughs> That's it? Yeah, that was it. But I was only allowed to watch from when I got home to five. Whoa. So like just an hour and a just little? Just an hour. Jeez. Because yeah. I had to do homework. Homework? What? Yeah. Well, that's why she can do math, and mm. you can. It just takes can. a while, I, I, and, no, and she's ends bad, up with the wrong she's answer. As bad as math I would, as I, I would oh, sit really? in my room and not do any homework. The system works. Shall we do rants and raves? Yes, please. I have a quick rave in honor of our guest. <gasps> a clip from 1991. Same. Speaking uh, of years soap of operas. <gasps> oh. Oh no. Um. Blake is a, um, a business associate of mine. Blake, this is Stephanie. Hi, nice to meet you. I bet you could have done a better job dishing out the food than I did. <laughs> Why? Didn't you say you were a stewardess? Um, no, I'm a pilot. Uh, Stephanie's one of the first female captains to have a transatlantic run. Oh, how interesting. But you just must be exhausted from the jet lag. It's not so bad when you're driving. Thanks a lot, Blake. I'll see you tomorrow, okay? Oh, of course, you two must have a lot to catch up on. Not really, it's our first date. Oh, of course. Well, good night. I'm sure you have everything you need. You look real cute in that bathroom. Well, thank you, thank you very much. I'm uh, sorry I'm running a little late myself. So I see. Well, I guess I'll be going. Don't forget to blow out the candles. We won't. Guiding light, 1991. You could cut the tension with a fucking knife. (laughs) First female jet pilot. Terrible. I'm a pilot. I remember, I mean, (laughs) and and for the viewers out there that cannot see this, my hair is so big. And I remember- We'll post it on the Facebook page, don't worry. I I went into the bathroom and just wet it down because it was like (laughs) literally this thick. That's pilot hair, man. A lot of wind coming through that window. (laughs) I was like, I remember thinking, what style is this? Just puff. I remember being in the building with Kelly Ripa and I'd see her walk around. In 1991? Yeah, she was around. Wait, the woman you're in, opposite scene, is a very famous TV actress. Yeah, Sherry something. Sherry. She was on like ER. Sherry Stringfield. Sherry Stringfield and like Brooke Smith and her and the girl who plays the like the guard in Orange is the New Black. Those are the girls I was always auditioning with. Mm. Chris, do you have that experience when you go on auditions and there's always like some dudes that sort of look like you? The repeat guys that like you're always kind of with. There was time, you know, I'm such a unique (laughs) presence though. (laughs) (laughs) I get called in with like, we don't know what to do with this. (laughs) Chris shows up and there's like. It's like me, a penguin. (laughs) 
a child. A child. We're not we're sure not what sure. direction we're going in. We might go animal kingdom. I mean, I we would take that Indian. as a compliment. I'm a unique presence. Yeah, um, a spice you can only use, apparently, very rarely. Well, that's my rave is Amanda's clip from Guiding Light. Chris, yeah. what do you have for rants um, and or raves? I've got nothing. The world, nothing. Um, the world I, is, it's, you know, it's either not that great it's not that bad. Okay. Sort of Metsamets has the French Italians. I do have one other rave, which, given the thematic content of our podcast, I feel like we have to play <gasps> this. Oh, I'm excited <laughs> um, to see human this. Human flesh. Second trailer for the forthcoming Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood dropped yesterday. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? No, I'm the stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. And it has been. Hot August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground. Here, I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. Charlie's gonna dig you. Towns. I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. I'm all in, 100. percent Does look great. It's a it's a love letter to Hollywood in the late 60s. It's got big time fucking movie stars. Also about like the end of American innocence um, and end of the innocence cult. Charlie Manson. Manson. Cult that line at the end, you're Rick fucking Dalton. Brad Pitt says came from his own experience in the 90s when he was on some movie set and someone who he doesn't name was acting with him and turned to him and said, just remember one thing. You're Brad fucking Pitt. I would like to be Brad fucking Pitt, but you are Brad fucking Pitt. So shut the fuck up and get out there and act. And wow, Robert like, Redford was, said that I was on filming that. Spy Game? <laughs> Maybe it was Spy Game. You know what was funny? I was like, I thought Quentin Tarantino made like a hundred films. You nope. know what I mean? Yeah. It's Nine. the ninth. I feel like he's such a part of our culture. Yeah. Well, this just goes to show how impactful his movies are. Yeah. You know, yes. they're timeless. Amazing. I think this is going to do well. I mean, I think it's catching a wave of nostalgia for a style of movie that doesn't exist. I love the way that DiCaprio and Brad are kind of playing, not losers, but I think Tarantino has said there's like three tiers represented 
one tier is like Margot Robbie, who's like the new star. She's the new flavor. And DiCaprio is kind of the guy from the studio system who's now out of favor and trying to stay relevant. Right. Then you have Brad Pitt, who his character's worked his whole life in the movies and has nothing to show for it. He lives in a trailer, stuntman, like that side of Hollywood. And they all converge using the Manson story as a through line. And it got a six minute standing ovation at the Cannes Film Festival. So that bodes well for actual movies. Yes. That don't involve guys in tights landing in that Marvel movie pose. I mean, if, if it holds up. Wow. Oh, I Look, I mean, it could be another Jackie Brown or it could be another Hateful Eight. Yeah, Hateful Eight wasn't that good. It won. It was shot on the big camera. I actually so like, didn't see it. That's the only one. Was I it shot seen. on? You mean like a seventy millimeter yeah. camera? And they oh, projected really? that, and it was like, I was like, what? Like, <laughs> why it looks are we doing nice? This? But why? <laughs> <laughs> Most of it is a bunch of people like in a room, seventy millimeters. Yeah. For inside a fucking log cabin, <laughs> like there's one shot of like a vista. <laughs> hey, look, That's Quentin's got to scratch the itch. I'm glad he does. I hope it does. This is hold totally up. in his wheelhouse. I He's know, gonna he nail this. Uh, well, until next week. Remembering that while Hannibal Lecter is a fascinating and groundbreaking literary conceit, brilliant, erudite, charming, and with an appreciation for the finer things in life, he's also a murderer and a cannibal. So, nobody's perfect. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.